check out my new book, Reach All Readers at reachallreaders.com. When you pre-order, you'll get special access to my Science of Reading mini course. Learn more at reachallreaders.com. This week on the podcast, I welcome Lindsay Kemeny, author of the brand new book, Seven Mighty Moves. Highly recommend it. It's a book that I now recommend for teachers who are new to the science of reading, as well as for anyone else who just wants to learn more. There's a lot of practical information in here. It's a short, easy read, excellent book. With that, we'll get right into the interview. Welcome back, Lindsay. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So last week, I replayed the episode where you joined me last year and talked about your transition from balance to structure literacy. A lot of that revolved around your son being diagnosed with dyslexia. And since that time, you've actually written and published a book, which is incredible. Five stars. Everyone should get their hands on it. Seven Mighty Moves, published through Scholastic. Tell us about how this even happened and what your goal was in writing this book. Oh, it feels surreal that this has happened. But um, back when I was, you know, going through that journey with my son that, you know, I talked about in that other episode, I started a blog. I just felt really passionate about sharing the things I was learning with others. And I just thought, you know, every child deserves a teacher who understands this stuff. Every teacher deserves to know this stuff. I hadn't been taught it. So just as I was learning, I started blogging. I don't have a huge blog. I don't blog a ton, but people were sharing it a lot on Twitter. And I assume that's where the people at at Scholastic saw it because they saw my blog. Several people had been reading through it. And last year in May, I got this email um, from the editorial director of Scholastic asking me if I was interested in writing a book. And I really like, I was like, is this a scam? Like, what is this? (laughs) real and also it was May and May is super crazy month for teachers yes and I just was like I can't even think about this right now and it took me a few weeks before I responded to the email and as I was thinking about it I was just like oh my goodness yes I would love to write a book I really want to help teachers out there I've been applying the things I've been learning in my classroom. I've learned some things. I would love to share this because I see so many misconceptions about the science of reading or I see people who understand it but still have questions about what it looks like and how do I apply it. And I just had letters training, but now what? And so I really wanted to help answer those questions. So I met with um, the team at Scholastic in June, and they invited me to write a book proposal. And that is pretty involved. There's several different things that need to be included in that and including a, a sample book chapter. So okay. I wrote that that summer and then handed it off to Scholastic. And then it had to go through several levels of the company. So it wasn't like one and done. It was kind of, it had to go through these cuts. And while I was waiting for that, it was summer. And that's when I had time to write. So I just continued to write. And I was just thinking, well, you know, if if Scholastic decides it's a no, I'll seek out another publisher because Mm -hmm. I really was getting into it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was the end of October when I learned that it was a yes from Scholastic. And so That then began the process of revising every chapter, giving them to my editor, getting feedback, getting advice, um, Mm -hmm. and fixing things. And I just came to really love the process. Like, I was excited for the feedback Mm -hmm. I would get. 
you know. And then I also reached out um, after my editor had been through everything. I reached out to some amazing experts in the field to read through and check all my draft chapters because I'm like, I want this to stand up to criticism. I want it to be accurate. I'm explaining how I interpret the research and I don't want to, you know, say anything wrong. So yeah. And so here we are. And it just, it just came out um, as, as we're recording this and this is going to come out pretty, this episode is going to come out pretty quickly. So um, this summer of 2023. So tell us about why you came up with the idea of seven mighty moves, like the way you structured the book. Yeah, well, it's, you know, if you look back, I have an old blog centered around maybe these seven major kind of mistakes I found myself making and kind of the biggest changes I made in my classroom. So, and, you know, if you listen to my other podcasts that I used to be, you know, very strong advocate for balanced literacy, and that's what I was trained in. And so for me, after learning about effective literacy instruction, I had to make changes. So these represent the seven, you know, big changes that I made. So when writing this book, was your audience primarily balanced literacy teachers who are moving to structured literacy? Or is it a wider audience than that? Really, I think it's all teachers. I think it's very applicable to those that already have knowledge of the science of reading and fully embrace it. uh, Because I see, you know, I, I think it's helpful to see how Others are applying the things that we're learning in the classroom. So it's it's for both. It's for the balanced literacy teacher. It's for the science of reading teacher. It's for those just just starting to teach. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, th- I think it helps everyone. And like, I love, I love listening to the experts and we have, and reading, and I, I have so many excellent books out there. I love professional development from these literacy gurus and researchers and cognitive scientists I also highly value hearing from the teacher that's in the classroom. And that's Mm -hmm. perhaps what makes my book a little different is that I'm currently teaching. I plan to still currently plan to keep teaching and I'm sharing. Here's what I do. Here's, you know, here's what I have found that works in my classroom. I think that's really Fabulous. And I agree that it does reach all those people. Um, I think for one thing, it's very easy to read and very um, relatable. So for for anyone, especially a new teacher, it's helpful. Also, for someone who's in a balanced literacy classroom, you do lay out in a very non-judgmental way the changes that are helpful. And then also, like I've been studying the science of reading like you for years, and I still learned a few new things that I hadn't heard of, or just a new perspective. And there's what's really great is the practical application and photos of actually your, your actual students. Um, usually when I read these books, I'm like, oh, I recognize that person because it's all the same stock photos. Like, <laughs> oh, I know that one. I've used that on a blog post. And these are all real pictures. Um, yeah, that's something. Can I just say that's something I think is really fun because all yes, all the pictures are from my classroom and the videos from my classroom. And it's really kind of funny because like I, I had a couple of the pictures. I had my literacy coach. Can you come in and take a couple of pictures during my phonics lesson today? Okay, awesome. Mm-hmm. And then some of them, my daughter was in fourth grade last year and she took some of the pictures. Like she came in at her recess. And I'm like, okay, just oh, that's here's great. the camera. Just take a couple, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and then that's you'll, so see, wonderful. you'll see there's QR codes to videos. And like, I mm-hmm. literally would just like set up my cell phone, push record, go around to the other side, teach the lesson, go back over. Mm-hmm. So it's all very authentic. 
Yeah, that is that is so good. That is just what teachers need. Well, mm-hmm. I, what I thought we'd do today is just walk very briefly through each of the seven. And for each one, I picked out something I think would be good to talk about. Okay, so move number one was teach phonemic awareness with intention. We've certainly talked about that a lot on this podcast. And we've recently talked more about this idea that we need to get right to phonemic awareness. Kids don't need to learn to break words apart into syllables or onset rhyme before we do phonemic awareness. And we know that's true based on research, but you also pointed out that at least for some children, backing up can be helpful, which is really good to hear from an actual teacher. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think some students do need more help with those larger units before moving to the smaller ones. And like I shared that example of working backwards. So I was giving this little student, you know, phonemes to blend, three phonemes to blend, and he couldn't do it. He also couldn't do two phonemes to blend. And I I talk about that in in the book that maybe some of those words were more abstract and that's why it was harder for him, but he couldn't. Mm -hmm. He also, you know, so he definitely had a deficiency in phonemic awareness. He also had a really hard time with attention. And so all those things kind of came into play. So I backed up and I tried onset rhyme and he still couldn't blend, you know, mm, app. He couldn't do that. So then I would, I backed up and gave him syllables, mm-hmm. purple, you know, mm-hmm. um, if he couldn't do that, then I would go back and do compound words like cupcake. Mm-hmm. Hey, listen, cupcake, put them together. Mm-hmm. He could do that one. And so I praised him. Yes, you got it. Excellent. And with that, um, with that praise came a little motivation, right? And, mm-hmm. and I talk about, especially for the student, he had already had, he was only a first grader, but already had a really negative experience with school. And he didn't, uh, you know, didn't learn any letter names or sounds his kindergarten year. He was really struggling. So he f- you, you know, I had to build him up as well. And mm-hmm. giving him some of those easier, larger units helped him go, oh, I can do this. You know, mm-hmm. okay, okay, I can do this. And then I moved back to, okay, listen, purple, you know, and helping him blend that. Then I could go to, um, oh, I skipped body coda before. But body coda is helpful if a student can't do onset rhyme, like mm, app. If you put that vowel at the beginning and go map, that's just a mm-hmm. little bit easier. So for him, that that was easier than he could do that. He struggled with the others. It took a little bit of time, but soon we got to the phoneme level. So it's just being really, um, you know, just being really aware, I guess, of, of that student and and what they need. So for him, those larger units were helpful in prepping him. But it's not that I would, I did that for weeks and weeks and withheld work at the phoneme level because we're still, mm-hmm. okay, now tell me the first sound in this word. You know, we're still working on that and we're, we're trying to get to the phoneme level as quickly as possible. And the next mighty move was teach phonics explicitly and systematically. And I just wanted to quickly discuss a tool that you mentioned that I had not heard of before, but I'm very excited about, called Finder from Devin Kearns. People might know that he's done a lot of research on multisyllable word reading. Um, But Finder is spelled P-H-I-N-D-E-R. Can you tell us about that and how you use it? I love this. I find myself going to this site all the time. So yes, it's devinkearns.com forward slash Finder. And you choose a grapheme and you type in the grapheme and then it's going to come up with all these different 
phonemes or sounds that that grapheme can represent. You click that and then it's going to give you a word list of all the different words. So that's so helpful if you maybe need to supplement your phonics program a little bit or you, you're saying, okay, we're teaching this sound spelling, but there's only a few words in the lesson. Are there more words I could use? And I can put it in and I can get more words. Maybe I don't like necessarily the sentence in my program for dictation that day, or I just want mm -hmm. some additional sentences. I will put in, I will find some words in there, and then I can make a sentence with those. I find it really useful. I just yeah, yeah, it's it's really cool. And it's it's really neat the way that offers once you type in the grapheme like, you know, I G H, it will tell you all the different ways that you can pronounce it. And then you yeah. click on the pronunciation and then it gives you the word list. So you don't have mm -hmm. a bunch of mismatched words, which you'll sometimes find if you're searching online for a particular particular pattern. Your yeah. your next mighty move was to teach decoding strategies, not cueing strategies. And I really like the little procedure that you share. It's on page seventy four about it's called provide the unknown sound. Can you walk us through that, that quick procedure for correction? Yeah. So you want to point out the part they missed or don't know and tell them that and have them reblend. So in the book, I give the example of the word house. Point to the H. What sound? <sighs> point to the O-U. I might first just point to see if they can self-correct that sound themselves. Okay. If they can't, then I tell them O-U spells ow. What sound? Ow. Good. Now they're going to blend the and the ow. So blend those. How? Great. Now look at the last letters. You know, it's S-E. What sound? S. Yes. Blend it all together. House. So you don't always just have to tell them, you know, I, I wouldn't just tell them the whole word, tell them the part mm -hmm. they missed and have them go through that practice of blending. Yeah, I think that's good because I've actually seen some well-meaning Structure literacy um, people, their their feedback routine is just to tell the word um, mm -hmm. a lot of times. And I think you're right that we should definitely call attention to the letters to give them a chance to solve it and to explicitly teach the parts they don't remember. When I have them, my kids working in partners, as a coaching procedure, I do tell the students to just tell them the word they missed because, I mean, these are first, second graders. It's going to be a lot to ask them to, okay, which spelling did they miss? Give them that mm -hmm. sound have them re-blend. So in that case, I, I'll just say, tell them the word, have them mm -hmm. repeat the word. But if it's me, if it's another adult for my parents, um, that's also, I, I teach them this procedure. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I, I wouldn't expect kids to be able to do that. <laughs> um, so it's good to have a different one. The next chapter was use decodable texts instead of predictable texts with beginning readers. And we've talked about that in this podcast many, many times. The biggest question I get from people, and I think it's, it's really hard because there's not a clear answer, but I'd love to hear from you as a teacher. How do you transition kids out of decodable text? And, you know, you've taught a, a, a multiple different grades in the past few years. How does that look different across the grades too? Yeah, I think this is something we tend to overcorrect on and people think the science of reading means decodable text and that that's what they you know that's all they're going to use or i see like a fourth grade teacher um saying oh i need decodable text for my classroom and i'm like well n you know maybe a couple of your kids will but most mm -hmm. of them shouldn't and so it's so important to know that these are they have a purpose and we want the goal is to transition out of them as soon as you can. And mm -hmm. 
it as soon as the child is ready. And what is tricky is that that's not exact science. You can't say mm -hmm. at this point of the year, they're ready. Or once they know this, they're ready. It's a little bit different for each student. Um, I think by the time that they have the majority of the the code and the most common grapheme phonemes, most a lot of them are going to be ready to transition. It was so fun teaching first grade this last year because this is really I just this is really the year that they're transitioning, I feel mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. And so some of my students were ready the end of January. Um, they were transitioning. Some took a little bit longer, but we're working on that transitioning. We're all in complex text as a whole group. That's going to help them and scaffolding them. Okay. And by the end of the year, all of my students, uh, except one, were able to be successful with an authentic text. So uh, in the book, I share the preferred guidelines of um, Linda Farrell and, mm -hmm. and Hunter. Um, and, you know, I would add to theirs because I think students need Val teams. So once they know, you know, digraphs, they know they can read words with those consonant clusters, they know are controlled, they know Val consonant E and Val teams, you can start seeing if they're ready to transition. And what I have found is that if I transition them and I'm listening into the read and they resort back to a lot of guessing and they're mm -hmm. missing a lot, then I'm like, oh, they're not ready. And so I go back to um, decodables for that student. What about somebody who would say, well, what's the problem with keeping them in decodables a lot longer? Um, what would you say to that? Like, what's the point of getting out of text that is just for everyone listening? It's the where the majority of the words can be decoded based on what they've been taught. Well, the goal that we have for our students is to read just anything, right? It's the goal mm -hmm. is not to read decodables. So, and there's also research that supports that complex text and getting them into the complex text. So, um, we want to push them towards the goal. We don't want to keep them in decodables forever. Um, decodables serve a purpose. And, uh, you know, and then the whole goal is to have them reading anything. So, And things they can't practice as well in decodables, like set for variability, where they, you get to an unfamiliar yeah. word that you can't 100% sound out and they have to be able to adjust it. And you need practice doing that because that's what many, many words are that we come across. Phonics gets us so far and then we have to adjust it to a word we know or a word that makes sense in the sentence. Um, but of course we start with the codables because we, that's the only thing that's going to work for a beginning reader to teach them to, to, for them to actually orthographically map the words because the other option is leveled predictable text where they use the picture and context and teaches bad habits. It's not true reading. Um, I like the way you talk about that in here. Our move number five was embrace a better approach to teaching sight words in quotes. Um, we've talked a lot about what sight words actually are and, and most people listening are probably familiar with the heart word method. So let's go in a little different direction and just talk about an old method of helping kids with unfamiliar words, which is still valid. And that's the one I think some people call it say it to spell it. Is that, is that right? If they call it that where they, they take a word that's um, like a word like Wednesday, which is obviously um, not phonetic hundred percent. And they just teach kids to do wed nest day. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So don't you do that as an adult? I do that. Mm -hmm. I say wed nest day. And so yeah. we'll do the same thing. And I kind of, in the book, I share my uh, procedure, my routine for teaching a word. And then we're going to kind of analyze it like the word friend and 
you know, in fact, the first time one of my students said, it looks like fry end. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it does. And we all kind of laughed. And then every time after that, whenever I would say to write the word friend or something, they would all go fry end. And everyone would remember that. And um, it was the same for the word many, they would go manny, you know, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it was just this silly little trick. And my students would get into it. They just thought it was so funny and that it would help them remember the spelling. So that's great. Yeah. And that's just a classic of teachers have been using for decades. Just as a reminder, we don't have to reinvent the wheel and everything that we're doing. (laughs) Yeah. Chapter six, move number six was about meaningful fluency practice. This is a great chapter. And I I often refer people to the workshop that you gave for Patton last year, I think, or their last conference Mm -hmm. about um, partner reading and paragraph shrinking. And I asked them to watch it. So whenever people email me about fluency practice for older kids or, you know, second grade and up, I always send them to that one because it's wonderful. And I really liked watching how the kids did the paragraph shrinking, even young kids. Can you talk us through that procedure a little bit? Yeah. Okay. Partner reading paragraph shrinking, I learned from Dr. Matt Burns, and it's a classified intervention. And it's like a pared down version of PALS, P-A-L-S. So if you've done this in your classroom, that in your classroom, it's like a shorter version. So it takes 20 minutes. Uh, So you have two partners and you've intentionally paired these students. So one is more fluent student and the other is less fluent. Okay. And the the stronger reader goes first. So that's going to be partner one or partner A, whatever. Um, And so partner A is going to read for five minutes aloud and partner B is following along and going to do an air correction procedure if they miss. Then I stop my timer and it's partner B's turn. They go back to the beginning and they read for five minutes while their other partner uh, monitors and follows along. Then I start, st- my timer goes off and we switch again. It's back to partner A. And now they're going to continue reading wherever the other reader left off. And they're going to stop at the end of each paragraph and they're going to what we call shrink that paragraph. And I'll tell you what that is a minute, but let me finish the routine. After they do that for five minutes, it goes back to partner B, and now they're going to continue reading wherever partner A left off, and they're going to stop after each paragraph to paragraph shrink. So in paragraph shrinking, um, the the re- one partner asks the one who was reading, um, what's the most important who or what in that paragraph? And they t- determine that, and then they ask, what's the most important thing about the who or what? in that paragraph and then they answer and then the third question is now say that main idea in 10 words or less so they're going to take that information they just shared about the most important who and what was most important about the who and they're going to condense it down into 10 words which is so fun to watch them do and Mm -hmm. they just put their fingers to count and i do have a video in there where uh you know where in that presentation where you know you can hear the student kind of you know do it incorrectly and has, you know, she corrects herself and then gets it in 10 words. So it's great. It's a great activity. And I saw huge results in my classroom, which I share in that presentation too. It is brilliant because it teaches summarizing, which is so hard to teach little kids. And then the finger thing, I, when I'm watching that, it was, I love that because you could see them start and they realized, oh no, this sentence is going to be way too long. So they learned to be very <laughs> concise. Uh huh. Did you have to do like how much how much modeling did it take for the kids to understand how to find the who or what and what happened? Because that's not easy. I know. You have to do a lot of modeling, especially the younger the the student is. And, and this 
this uh, procedure is meant for grades two and up, two through eight. Okay. So, uh, but I did do like a version of it that in the first grade last year, um, we could talk mm-hmm. about that another time, but so lots of modeling and returning to it and, you know, then giving them a chance to try and they're doing it, but then you're doing it too. And so you could do, we could do this anytime when we're reading yeah. our complex text together, I can mm-hmm. model this for them. Um, the who or what is, is usually not so hard. Sometimes, um, sometimes they had a hard time. They would raise their hands and I would, I would go over and help them. Sometimes they were just disagreeing and it was really kind okay. of hard. Well, she says the most important who is this, but I think it's this. So then uh-huh. we kind of talk about why, you know, but showing them too those, what is each sentence referring to? And you can, you know, circle those pronouns. What is this referring yes. to? Mm-hmm. Look, each, each one is about the turtle. So yeah. the most important who or what is the turtle? So yeah, it's it's great, but yes, it requires modeling. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I just that is just one of the most brilliant things I've seen. I love it, and it, and it's what's great about it is it works perfectly for any grade above two. You just their yeah. text is harder, so they just have a, a more challenging job writing the summary. We're yeah. gonna finish up with number seven, which was improve comprehension by developing vocabulary and background knowledge. That's that's been a big thing in the science of reading community lately about how we need to fo- we need to step away from this idea that we need to teach all these um, strategies for long periods of time, but we need to focus instead on the content of the text. And you had a, a keyword outline procedure, which I thought was interesting. Could you talk to us about that? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk, and strategy instruction is important. The thing is, like, especially for me, I was neglecting the importance of background knowledge and vocabulary. And so that was the focus of this chapter. And the keyword outline procedure I learned from the Institute for Excellence in Writing, IEW. And they, uh, I love this procedure because you take a passage and you start with really short passage, like maybe six sentences. First, we're going to read it. I might read the whole thing to the class or we might quarrel read it. And now we're going to take it apart sentence by sentence. So we're going to read the first sentence and I'm going to say, choose the three most important words in this sentence. And we're going to talk about it. What do you think it is? Mm -hmm. So like in the, um, in the book, let's see, this is on page 138. So the passage we read, the first sentence was a fox sometimes hunts for insects. And so, you know, one student might say, okay, I think it's fox hunts insects. Okay. Or someone might say, oh, sometimes hunts insects. And we, we discuss the three, they circle, um, the three most important ones. A lot of times we say, oh, we don't need to put fox in there because it's in our title. We already have that at the top. Anyway, we choose our three words and then they're going to write them. This is, we're going to make an outline. Then we go to the next sentence, choose three words, write them on that line, go to the next one, go to the next one for the whole passage. Then they're going to take this, the passage and put it away. We're not going to look at it again because now we have our keyword outline and now we're going to write a summary of that from that outline. And so Mm -hmm. this is so great for writing too, because, you know, how many times do you have those students that are like, I don't know what to write about? I don't Mm -hmm. know. And they lose all this time because they just don't know what to write about. Well, mm-hmm. we have something for them right here to write about. And they're writing about something they read, which is excellent. Really good for comprehension. Yep. Yes. And 
so now they can take this and and they see okay um sometimes hunts insects and they're going to come up with a sentence and we do this all orally first can you turn those three words into a sentence and then they're going to tell it i have them tell it to their partner and so they'll go through the whole you know we have a you know six lines of a keyword outline and they're going to orally retell them to their partners then they will write them mm-hmm. and you know it's great because we can add a lot more writing we can talk about adding you know strong adjectives strong verbs mm-hmm. and different things into the writing so it's a great great strategy so the goal is not to recreate the original paragraph but right. to summarize the paragraph in an interesting way using yeah. the keywords that you've noted Yep. Well, this book is full of things like that, that we just shared, things you may have not heard of before, not, not to mention just the practical um, research, research base for why we teach this way. So I can't recommend it enough. I hope that everybody listening will go out and grab it. Uh, Seven Mighty Moves, you can get it on Amazon. And be sure to leave a review too, because that will allow more people to see the book. Is there anything else you want to share with us, Lindsay? You can talk about your podcast or any, any place else people can find you. Um, yeah, I'm the co-host of the Literacy Talks podcast. So if you want to check that out, um, we are three literacy nerds and we just talk all things literacy. Mm-hmm. And yes, thank you so much, Anna. And I'm so glad that you like the book. That means so much to me. So thank of course. you. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on. Thank you. You can find the show notes for this episode at themeasuredmom.com forward slash episode 130. Talk to you next time. That's all for this episode of Triple R Teaching. For more educational resources, visit Anna at her home base, themeasuredmom.com, and join our teaching community. We look forward to helping you reflect, refine, and recharge on the next episode of Triple R Teaching.